Folks, would you uh, join with me in prayer? And um, what I want to pray for, too, particularly with a text like this. Um, <clears throat> yet, we would ask God to give us grace that his word would be properly applied to the hearts of people. Um, oftentimes, these sort of scriptures can uh, leave the, those needing encouragement to feel admonished. And those probably needing admonished to think somebody else needs to hear it. And so let's join with me as I appeal to God for grace uh, that uh, with thanksgiving that God's word will accomplish all that he purposes it to do today. So let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you again as we've seen throughout this series. um, The dramatic nature of how you speak about truth, how you instruct your people, pulling no punches, making it clear, often painfully clear, Father. Father, each one of us stands guilty in some measure of faithlessness, and we approach this text with a degree of fear. We want to stand in awe before you, but we also want to speak your words. So, Father, would you grant us grace to understand and to be instructed and to be encouraged, perhaps admonished over this text. Father, we want to be different from this word. We want it to bear, we want it to sink deep within our soul and produce 30, 60, 100 fold. For the glory of your name, we know that our joy will be wrapped up in that. So bring that to pass, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of you know the name Pat Robertson. He uh, has been a longtime host of the 700 Club. He was a one-time Republican presidential nominee. Um, He, uh, yeah, has made the news oftentimes for things that, frankly, I think any thoughtful Christian tends to cringe and put his head down and pray that it would blow over soon. He's uh, the chairman of the Christian Broadcasting Network, and having a history of saying some things that probably would have been best left unsaid, he added to the list last month. Um, Sadly, and um, it was a situation when he was on this religious television program that he runs, and a person called up and asked a very serious, difficult question, and This was the question, I have a friend whose wife suffers from Alzheimer's and she doesn't even recognize him anymore. And as you can imagine, the marriage has been rough. My friend has gotten bitter at God for allowing his wife to be in that condition and now he's started seeing another woman. He says that he should be allowed to see other people because his wife, as he knows her, is gone. I'm not quite sure what to tell him. Clearly a difficult situation. One that cannot be answered legitimately in a paragraph, but... Uh, one was tried. And so he responds, this is a terribly hard thing. I hate Alzheimer's. This is Pat Robertson now speaking on the air, recorded, shown on ABC. It is one of the most awful things because here, <clears throat> here's a loved one. This is the woman or man that you've loved for 20, 30, or 40 years, and suddenly the person is gone. They're gone. So what he says basically is correct. But I know it sounds cruel. 
But if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again, but to make sure that she has custodial care and someone looking after her. Now, I'm not, there's a lot more dialogue that went on, and I want to try to give the benefit of the doubt. I raise this as an example only to show the nature of marriage, even among the Christian community, is beginning to waver. We don't need to look at the world. We don't need to worry about marriage amendments. We just got to start right here. What is our understanding of marriage? In fact, it's, it's interesting how it has invaded the church. So when you list marriages, or sorry, when you list divorces by profession, pastors are the third most likely to get a divorce. Pastors are. I mean, the third most likely of all the professions. So, I mean, clearly the, the church uh, in many ways has accommodated, accommodated itself to the prevailing winds of the culture. What does the Bible say about marriage? I mean, what does it say about divorce? What's it say about the one that you should marry? You know, this is really the third disputation that God has. God is taking issue with the people of God. And it's on this issue of faithfulness, particularly not just general faithfulness, but specifically within the marital covenant. He's speaking about faithfulness. Now, now remember the context of what we have here. You have the people of Israel. They've already been sent in exile to Babylon because of their faithlessness and, and pursuing after other gods. Now, God is faithful to his covenant. And so he draws them back to Israel through a pagan king. He, he raises up leaders like Zerubbabel. They rebuild the temple. There's this messianic expectation. Maybe this is the time the Messiah is going to come. Under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, there's this encouragement But things don't happen within 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So here we are, maybe 50, 75 years later, and this excitement for God is beginning to wane. And so God, again in mercy, raises up a prophet, Malachi, and Malachi goes to the people of God, and he says, hey, God has some issues with you. Now remember, in Scripture, when God warns his people, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because he isn't just bringing judgment, he's bringing a warning first. And his warning, we've read it through the first two chapters. Malachi first takes issue with the insensitivity of the people of God. Here God has said, I've loved you, Jacob, and Esau I hate it. This sovereign love has been given to Jacob, and they don't even understand that God loves them. Secondly, Malachi chided the people of Israel because of their half-hearted worship. I mean, God loves them, and they're bringing blemished animals. And so he chides them. God is far more honorable than just bringing a blemished lamb. He chides them for their leadership. We saw that last week. That the leaders didn't stand in awe of God. The leaders didn't speak the words of God. And so Malachi says... To them and chides them for proper leadership like Levi before. And now, this passage, he is chiding the people. Malachi is challenging the people to be faithful to God in all things. To be faithful. He's calling for us to be reformed. He's calling for us to be revived. 
So let's read this and see how he calls us. There's clearly going to be this general call in 10, and then Malachi is going to narrow it in the context of the marital covenant in the rest of the passage. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 to 16, he says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and don't be faithless. Interesting, as you probably noticed, the text is really speaking to men. It's not speaking to women. It's going to apply to marriage, but it's really speaking to men. Okay, the first thing we see is Malachi is with these questions. They're not really questions. They're rhetoricals. I mean, we know what he's saying here. They're really statements. But he's trying to show us, he's trying to to move with questions to elicit a degree of spiritual conviction within the people of God. Look what he says in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant? In other words, what he's saying is, if we share the same creator God, who as Father has drawn us into a covenant with himself, if that's the case, Why are we faithless to one another? I mean, I I think his point is, if we have an equal share of God as our Father, then why are we being faithless, breaking faith, not walking in trust with one another? He's speaking, I think, to the entire congregation. It's profaning the covenant. It defames God. It makes God look bad when his children, who are called by his name, don't display any of his likeness. Remember the covenant. So the covenant I take to be referring to the covenant of Abraham, where God called Abraham out of Ur by no merit of his own, just grace, and said that I'm going to raise up a people through you that will be a people for my glory and my name, and you will display me to the world. And through this people, I'm going to bring a deliverer who is going to redeem the lost Back to the Father. Remember, the covenant of Abraham flows from the covenant of Adam that was broken by sin. And so you see Genesis 2, this covenant, and the Genesis 3, the fall. And then you see this lead up to Genesis 12. And this is God's move to bless the nations. This is God's move to redeem men and women through this covenant. It's overwhelming that we're in this covenant with God and that we're being faithless to one another. 
But he narrows it down. Look with me in verse 11. He kind of moves it into the marital union here. He's not just speaking about a general faithlessness, although that may be true, and I'll touch on that later. But he moves right to the marital union. And the first thing he takes issue with is that these people were marrying women of other faiths. I think that's what he's saying in verse 11. He says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord and has married the daughter of a foreign god. I don't think he's calling, I don't think he's speaking against interracial marriage. I don't think he's saying that. He's talking about interreligious marriage. In other words, when you marry a woman who worships another god, they're marrying the daughters of a foreign god. I mean, you have Ruth and Boaz, that's an interracial marriage, and that was, the Lord has come through that line. So he's not speaking about interracial, he's not talking about racial purity, he's talking about religious purity, that you are not to marry a woman who worships another god. In fact, God's take on it is, is really kind of severe. Look at his language, he says, it's an abomination. In other words, it is absolutely despising of God to do this because it profanes the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Does it profane the temple? Well, I don't think so. The sanctuary of the Lord, I would take to mean the people of God. In other words, when you introduce a woman into a marital union within a people who worships another God, it sows the seeds of destruction for this covenant community to be pure, to be wholly dedicated to God. Why? Well, you're introducing another God into the mix, into the home. Now listen, when two people come together and they have two religions, the religion that usually wins the day is the one with the less standards. And paganism has less standards. We are naturally lazy and go with the flow. It's easier. Paganism didn't put the demands that the Mosaic Law put on people. And so it tends to win by default and by laziness. Now, Israel knew a history of struggling with interreligious marriages. <clears throat> Solomon being kind of a high watermark of introducing foreign women. But, but it was really throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, you could argue that part of the reason that Israel was in exile was because they intermarried with other religions thereby undermining the religious purity, that we were to display the holiness of God. Remember, God in Exodus 19 says, you're my treasured possession. You're going to display my holiness. And you bring in other gods into this marital covenant, and it will ruin the covenant people. And God is opposed to that. And that's why you see Malachi's prayer. If you look in verse 12, he says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of any descendant, excuse me, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. What he's saying is, in this prayer, he's saying, God, make them barren. Make them childless. So that when they're old and they have no children, it will be a testimony against them. They were not faithful. They were not faithful to God by marrying a woman who worshipped Yahweh. Make them barren so that they don't have kids that will repeat this despicable sin. <clears throat> God is serious about this. Let me try to give you an example of his seriousness. So let me draw your minds back to numbers. Children of Israel moving through 
heading toward the promised land. And if you remember, um, they came across, Balak was a king, and he was threatened by this nation coming through, and he hired Balaam, the prophet, to prophesy against Israel, that they would be destroyed, and of course, God would not let him do that. And so he was prohibited from cursing Israel, but Balaam wanted the money that was offered to him, and so what he did was he introduced this idea of Moabite women. And so Moabite women began to move in the midst of the camp. And, of course, men were attracted to the women. And boom was the introduction of this Moabite gods. And it turned out that God then brings judgment upon Israel for their impurity and for their beginning to move with the gods of other, of other nations. Okay, in the middle of Israel's repentance, one Israelite man brings a Midianite woman into his tent to have sex with her. It's in the middle of Israel. He brings her into the tent and begins to have sex with her. And Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, who is zealous for the purity of God, takes a spear. And while they're having sex, runs the spear through both of them and kills them. Runs the spear through both of them. That's how we know that they were having sex while he killed them. When he comes out of the tent, God makes an eternal covenant with him because he was zealous for the purity of God. And he says, I will make a covenant with Phineas of life and peace. That's the seriousness of God regarding our purity, particularly in getting into marriage. Even the priests in Ezra's day and Malachi's day were marrying foreign women. It's a serious issue, according to God. But he has a second thing that he challenges the people with. The second thing is found in verse 13 and 14 where he says, and this second thing you do, he speaks about covering the Lord's altar with tears, and then he says here, because you have been faithless with the wife of your youth, in verse 14, whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. So what was happening, in addition to men moving towards women, and I presumably women towards men of other faiths, those who were married, these Israelite men, were sending away their Israelite women and bringing in foreign women, presumably younger, going with maybe an earlier, a newer model, shall we say, bringing in younger women because he says the wife of your youth. They were sending their wives away to bring in younger women. Now, these are religious people. I want you to understand that the book of Malachi is to a very religious people. You see in 13, they're weeping on the altar. Haven't seen many of us do that. They're weeping on the altar. They're groaning. They're offering their sacrifices. So they're worshiping God in their own way. But what's happening is the crops aren't coming in. They're barren. God's bringing a form of judgment upon them. And so they ask Malachi, they ask him the question and say, why does he not receive our offerings? And Malachi tells them straight up. He says, you've been faithless. You've been faithless. In other words, they weren't connecting the dots. They were not seeing, oh, I'm going to try to be covenantally faithful with God through offering sacrifices, but I'm not going to honor the covenant with my wife in marriage. And I wonder why God's not listening to me. I, I think that's the idea when he says, for God is a witness. You notice that. He says, 
but the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, the marital covenant, when we are married and we make this covenant and promise, God is a witness to that covenant. It's a triangular relationship. In, in the vows, when you say, I do, you are speaking to God and your spouse. That there is a triangular covenant made between God and the wife of your youth. I'm going to be promised in rich and poor and poverty and sickness and in health. In good and bad, till death do us part. I'm committing to you. Someone said that's often the biggest lie we hear. I do. I will do it. I will do it. I will covenant. And they were not doing it. And what God is showing us here is our marriages are a shadow of the covenant that he has made with Israel. Why do I say that? Well, even in Isaiah 54, 4, God refers to Israel in terms of a covenant as the wife of his youth. Similar language. That God in Israel is like a husband and wife as the people of God are a husband and wife. Now you notice then why it makes sense that Malachi would say twice in 15 and 16 that uh, guard yourselves in your spirit. He's telling, he's telling the marrieds how to be faithful. Guard yourselves in your spirit. 15 and 16 are almost untranslatable. Uh, scholars across the board. And you'll see in the bottom of your Bibles, you'll see all those little numbers and on alternative translations. It's so difficult to translate. I'm just going to follow the ESV on this. And I think they tend to have more of a, a literal reading, although there are multiple readings on some of these sentences. But I think the tenor of the text would still drive our understanding of what these these two verses share us and what they're share with us and what they're saying is you guard yourselves in your spirit. In other words, Malachi is chiding these men who were sending their wives away. They didn't guard themselves in their spirit. They sent their wives away. And look at what he says in sixteen. He says, The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. It's it's a metaphor, not for physical violence, I don't think although it could refer to that, I think it's the violence that comes upon a family in the midst of divorce. There is violence. There is a rupturing of what faithfulness looks like. It is difficult on wife, husband, and children alike. Seriously difficult. And I think he's warning us. This is why he's saying guard yourselves in your spirit because of the violence that will come. Some of your Bibles in verse 16 have... Uh, God hates divorce. And uh, we're reading in this translation, for the man who does not love his wife, or you could say for the man who hates his wife, divorces her, covers his garment with praise. I think it's saying the same thing. The reason I like this translation better is because sometimes we hear God hates divorce and we make that an um, an absolute statement. And Scripture does indicate that there are particular circumstances, namely adultery and desertion, for which God has permitted divorce. And when you just read God hates divorce, the person who is sinned against by adultery and a divorce ensues from the relationship often feel this burden of guilt from God that I wouldn't want them to bear because Scripture doesn't seem to incline us to go that way. All divorce is occasioned by sin. But there is permission by God in the context of certain situations. 
So Malachi is speaking to the people of God, saying, people, we are marked. We are in a covenant with a God who is faithful. And so we are called to be faithful to each other. We're called to be faithful with God in terms of the person that we marry. And we're to be faithful in that marriage that we have forged because we've covenanted to God and the person. Now, what do we do with this as New Testament Christians? Do we look at this and say, well, Tom, that's Old Testament. That's not for us now. I mean, now it's a new thing. We don't have to work with this anymore. Well, I would say no, 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 no. I, I mean, let's go back. This is bound up in the covenant with Abraham. But, but I want to show you the unity of the Scriptures. Remember, the, 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 there is covenants throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. And, and this covenant of Abraham was a promise that God was making to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. Well, as New Testament Christians, we see this covenant of Abraham as fulfilled in Christ. That Christ is the seed both of Adam and the seed of Abraham, Interesting, both genealogies are recorded in the New Testament, in the Gospels. One genealogy traces them back to the son of Adam. One genealogy traces them back to the son of Abraham. So the Gospel writers want us to say Jesus is the one that was to come in the promise of God to Abraham. And one would come, and this covenant with Jesus is a better covenant. Hebrews tells us it's it's richer, it's fuller, it's more powerful. No longer are we waiting for the promises to come as all the saints in Hebrews 11 were. But Jesus hasn't just come with a promise. He's come with an accomplishment. So Christ's coming and dying on the cross, bearing our sins and shame and guilt. And that by faith we join in union with him, just as Abraham joined in faith with God, trusting that he would bring a seed. Now we trust in Christ being made in union with him, our sins being dumped upon him, his righteousness given to us. We now have a better covenant. So the New Testament Christians look back on this with excitement. Why? Because here's what the covenant has given us. This covenant that Abraham had was a promise. He didn't see it. Just a glimpse of it. We see it now with 2020. That this covenant, we've been made for those of us with faith in Jesus Christ. You've been made to be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That has been accomplished in Christ. You've been forgiven in Christ. That has come to you because of this covenant work that Christ has done. He hasn't sacrificed an animal on behalf of you. He has sacrificed himself and established a covenant with the Father In himself. It's a solid covenant. Forgiveness of sins. Guilt and shame removed. You are now able to forgive others because you've been divinely forgiven. You have that capacity in Christ. You have hope. You can approach God. You could never approach God. That was the whole idea of the Holy of Holies. High priest, once a year, rope to the ankle. If he did anything wrong, they'd have to haul his rear end out of there. Nobody could go in there. They'd all die. But you have the ability to go up to him. I think I just said rear end. <laughs> In the moment, it's, I won't call it divine inspiration. Just a little excitement and exuberance. You're forgiven. You have hope. You have the spirit of God now dwelling within you because of Christ. 
So faithfulness is looking different for us. So for the New Testament Christian, what does faithfulness look like? Well, at a minimum, for all of us, faithfulness looks like that we are honoring the commitments that we're making to one another in this body. I'm speaking now for all of us, not just in marriage. Faithfulness looks like that we are willing to trust. We are willing to sacrifice. We are willing to serve. We are willing to love. We are willing to be put out for one another. Listen, we just had these new members come up. Here's the covenant that they signed. And here's the covenant that you signed. It's a good covenant. I don't have it up here. But I'll tell you this, because I've almost got it memorized. It was a covenant to follow the leadership. It was a covenant to speak openly and honestly with the leadership. It's a covenant that they would pray for you and they would love you. It's a covenant that they would not speak in gossip. It was a covenant that they would promise to use their gifts for the upbuilding of this church. It was a covenant. That's about it. There's about six or seven other things. They've covenanted it to us. They've promised these things to us. And for us now, with the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we are now to walk out that covenant. That is what it means to be faithful to one another and to God. God's glory is displayed in that. But, but faithfulness also looks like, for those of you who are single or unmarried, faithfulness looks like you only engage with the purpose of marriage, with a believer. Now, I, I know that you may meet someone who is not a believer, and, and you really think he's a great guy, and you, and you love him, and, and, and he's promised to go to church with you, and he's promised to raise the kids with you, and you know what? No one else is sharing the gospel with him. I've got to stick with him. Nobody else is sharing with him. And you will find justification to maintain a relationship that's heading towards a serious nature And I would say, do not break faith with God by listening to your self-justification. There is no more intimate relationship on this earth than marriage. And to be yoked with a man or a woman who has a different God, even if their God is themselves, it will not lead to the harmony that you want. I don't speak to this as theory. I mean, Carol and I are guilty of this. I would not marry a couple that were in the position of Carol and I. Uh, Carol was walking by faith, haltingly and failingly because of my influence. She was a great girl. She thought I was a great guy. But I was not living for God in any measure. I don't even know if, if I was a Christian, I had fallen so far back that I should have been trembling. Remember one time she came up from a retreat and she said, uh, I really would love you to go on this retreat with me. And it was just a sweet retreat, encouraging people in the faith. And I remember saying to her, and I, I can't, you know, these are things, as you get older, you remember certain things you said and you wish you had never said them, but I said, I'll never go on that retreat with you. Because I didn't want to. And I wasn't about her. I wasn't about seeking God. And so clearly I was the God of my life. Now, his grace was and always is sufficient. We are the exception. You never follow exceptions. We were the exception to the rule. God drawing me to himself. God can and God has with other unequally yoked spouses. 
but, but it is not something to count on. To be faithful to God is to say, I'm going to marry a man or a woman who is faithful to God. It's essential. There's a lot of struggle in life that we've seen. To be faithful in this context would be, for those of you who are married, in an unequally yoked situation, what does faithfulness look for you? Perhaps uh, you married an unbeliever, or perhaps you got married and then one of you came to faith. What does faithfulness look like in the context of that marital union? I would say faithfulness looks like you remain in the covenant. You remain in the marriage. Now, I realize that is not always possible. But the effort made is to remain in the marriage. Because your influence in the New Testament perspective begins to shed its weight on your partner as you live for the glory of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband made, is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, saying that, I recognize and I want you to recognize that it is immensely difficult in some of these contexts to exist in this situation. I want you to hear me speak very humbly and well aware of its difficulty. Uh, the church is to strengthen believers, and sometimes it just does not work due to the uh, desertion of the spouse and due to a thousand other. This is such a complicated issue. But faithfulness is us striving to maintain that covenant as long as and as much as we are able to. Uh, thirdly, faithfulness looks like for married couples who are married in the faith, uh, faithfulness looks like what he's saying here, that the two become one through the power of the Spirit. There's this idea of companionship, that when you think of marriage, you know, four in ten people in America, according to a Pew Research group, think that marriage is obsolete. It is on its way out as an institution. May God help us if it is. But four out of ten think it's obsolete. That marriage, in the eyes of God, is a covenant of companionship. That, that Hebrew word for companionship is interesting because it indicates, it, it's a word used for an intimate friendship. It, it, the wife is not a concubine or a housewife. The husband's not just a worker. There is a bilateral relationship of, the, the word companionship means a sharing of the good and the bad. That, that for richer, for poor, and sickness and health. In times of, of plenty and times of want, that there is a developing oneness between the husband and wife. You do not get this by osmosis. What faithfulness looks like is you striving for this oneness, that you're looking at your marriage on a regular basis and asking your wife, Do you sense we're growing closer? I mean, is there oneness growing in our sexuality? Is there oneness in our financial world? Is there oneness in our emotional connection? Is there oneness in our parents? Doesn't mean, it isn't asking for uniformity. There is equality between men and women, but there's not uniformity. And God has designed differences to be for our benefit. And so this marital covenant, this oneness, what does faithfulness look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like, Ephesians chapter 5, really. So in the Old Testament, you have God and Israel as kind of the picture of the marriage. In the New Testament, he gives us Christ in the church. And he draws men. So men, for you to be faithful, for you to be pursuing God in faithfulness, 
you are actively acting as Christ to your wife. Not in a redemptive way, in the sense that you can take upon yourself her sins, but you are acting in a manner. You're serving, you're sacrificing. You are seeking to move in such a way that your wife is going to be drawn to understand God in greater measure. You're actively promoting godliness in your wife. That's what he means by washing her with the word. You're taking the scriptures and you are speaking them to her, you're explaining them, you're living them for her. You're a servant unto her, sacrificing yourself just like Christ. Man, this is a tall order. Thankfully, we have the Spirit of God within us. Thankfully, Christ has forgiven us. Thankfully, we have the hope of of seeing God face to face. Thankfully, we appeal to God for grace so that we can do this. I mean, men, we have that at our disposal. Everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of him who has called you to his own goodness and glory. First, it's all you. He's given it to you. We are called to walk by faith in it. When we fail, we repent. We can do that now because we have the gospel and we have this great hope. That's what faithfulness looks like, men. Women, it is that responding that rejoicing over, that promotion, that seeing one spark of effort in the husband, and you're watering that seed. You're encouraging that seed. I see the grace of God in your life, honey. Thank you for sacrificing for me. Thank you for loving me. It's that encouragement. You are the whole band, encouraging, strengthening, responding rightly. That's what faithfulness looks like. That's what marriage is about that our marriages are to display the greatness of God. Now listen, these marriages, faithfulness in marriage is in the context of two sinners. That's what marriage is. Two sinners have come together. You're going to fail each other. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to disappoint. We're going to fail to meet the expectations of the other. Sometimes, sadly, even within believing households, sometimes those failures are so great that divorce becomes a consideration. You know, divorce in Scripture is never commanded, it's never required, but it is permitted, as I said, in adultery and desertion. And, and when that is the case in certain marriages, we ask for time, just time. Time, seeking counsel with leadership, seeking counsel of believers, when there is such a rupture to the relationship. And sadly, there are those times. But we are called to guard ourselves in the spirit. Twice he tells us, guard yourselves. Men, guard yourselves. Ladies, guard yourselves to be found faithful. You know, I I began the sermon with uh, the quote from Pat Robertson and about how Alzheimer's, at least from his take, was perhaps a means of justification to divorce and get remarried. I want to close with another example of another man with a wife who also has Alzheimer's. I want to show you a picture of, of covenantal faithfulness that, that ought to encourage us, that we ought to see it and say, the Spirit of God is able to do in us all that he needs to do that we might be found faithful. And this story comes from Robert McQuilkin. Many of you have heard the story. He was the college, uh, the president of the uh, Columbia Bible College, I think it's Columbia now, International University. But he was a big, he's a big man, a college president, doing well, college growing, thriving under his leadership. Uh, his wife had Alzheimer's, and uh, at one point he had to resign. And I want to read to you his resignation. I, I think I read this to you maybe <clears throat> eight, nine years ago, but, but I found it ironically fitting 
you know, in terms of one being justified to leave because of Alzheimer's and another having the grace of God to stay in marriage because of Alzheimer's. And, and here's what he writes. He says this in his resignation letter. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for eight years recently. It has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. She is filled with fear that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave. It's clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. As a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so did fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. Duty, however, is grim and stoic. Grim and stoic. This is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her occasional flashes of wit, her happy spirit and resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor. So when we look at Malachi, he is reviving a people that has grown cold in its devotion to God. And our devotion to God growing cold will always show its symptoms in marriages growing cold. And so the call is to be faithful. Number one, we're to be faithful to one another in here. According to the covenant that we've signed. According to the call in scripture of loving one another. But, but also, we're to be faithful in terms of those whom we marry. That we take care of the person that we marry. But also that we take care of the one that we marry. Finishing well. So let's pray now. We have some time to lift up our petition, our confession. I, I would ask you, because we are a family, we are in covenant to God. We have one Father, one Creator God, who has now drawn us to himself through the blood of Christ. And I would ask you uh, to pray loudly and to pray even briefly that we might hear uh, and join with you in prayers. And, and, and before we pray, let me remind you of this verse. Because all, a text like this can tend to, you know, many of you are looking at your marriages and uh, you're struggling uh, or defending, perhaps. Uh, and we have this encouragement in the letter to, second, uh, to Timothy, second letter. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, uh, let's take our failings uh, to the power of the gospel. He cannot disown us. He is our head. We are part of his body. He can't disown us. He will move well within us. So let's seek that now. I'll begin and then uh, Ray will close us in a few minutes. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your word. Thank you for making it clear. Thank you for making it strong. Thank you, though, Father, for giving us Christ in whom we can do all things, even be found faithful in our marriage. 